It's always nice to share our passion for aviation when we can take a friend or family member on a short flight or maybe to a different destination. It's great to see that person experience the world in a way that's much different from the ground or the airlines. But when something goes wrong, dealing with the emergency becomes paramount. Knowing what to do, keeping your cool, and preventing your passenger from panicking are all part of the EP. That's the scenario on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, I'm Rob Ryder, and welcome to episode 61 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Aviation Insurance. My guest today offered to fly his cousin from the Boston area to attend school at the University of Vermont. The ceilings at Hanscom Field were 500 over, but after entering the clouds, the alternator failed. He declared an emergency, got vectored back to the ILS, but caused a couple of VIP airplanes with a unique call sign to have to go around. That call sign? Sam. We'll hear the whole story right after this word from Avemco. There's only one aircraft insurance company that invites you to call them and actually discuss your situation with an aviation insurance specialist. That company is a Vemco. What kind of flying do you do? What if you don't fly all winter? Why is it just as bad to have too much insurance as too little? Is there a penalty just for being an older pilot? Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Either way, tell them you're an I learned about flying from that listener and you'll save an additional 5%. Now, I learned about flying from that. My guest today on I Laughed is Ford Von Weise, and he was a nice guy helping out a family member get to college, and then all sorts of things went wrong, and it became a big brouhaha at a very, very nice airport near Boston. Ford, you're going to have to explain this in a minute, but welcome to I Laughed. Well, you know, Rob, I'm really glad to be here. Um, I've been a fan of Flying Magazine for over 30 years, and been a subscribers since I became a pilot about a uh, little more than 30 years ago. And I, by the way, I love what you all have done with the uh, magazine oh, over the past you. year. You've done a great job. And, uh, but, you know, back to sort of the story, uh, I learned to fly at Hanscom Field at Executive Flyers Aviation, which is Mike Goulian, our, you know, well-known Mike Goulian's shop. Oh, yeah. Mike is a super friend. He's an incredibly skilled and talented pilot. He literally wrote the book on advanced aerobatics. He's an ATP. He's dedicated to aviation. Now, you learned to fly with Mike's dad at Executive Flyers? Well, Mike, too, he gave me one of my segment um, you know, evaluations or check rides. Mike's, I consider Mike a good friend. And, Indeed. Um, I've learned a lot from him and a lot from his father. And Executive Flyers was a great place to learn. Um, and when they talk about emergencies, you listen and you hope it never happens to you. But on this day in question, we certainly had an emergency. We, you, you surely did. And boy, what a small world it is. Well, your, your involvement in aviation didn't just stop with getting your private and, and, and other ratings at Executive Flyers. You got into brokering airplanes, didn't you? 
Well, sort of. I, I did. What really becoming a pilot changed my life. I mean, Tell me big, how. In a big way, because I was in commercial real estate at the time, working for a firm uh, called Boston Financial, which became Lend-Lease, a large international real estate firm. And I became a pilot and said, I love the industry. I want to get in it. And uh, I wanted to learn about it. So I worked for a local broker dealer for about six months. Uh, and after which I went into aircraft finance. And I was working for GMAC Commercial Finance, financing um, aircraft for about a billion dollars up. Oh, my. And after that, um, ended up working at Merrill Lynch doing the same. And now I've been at City for almost 18 years uh, financing business aviation aircraft. $5 million and, and more here in the U.S. Half of our business is outside the U.S., which is $10 million and more. And we've got a portfolio of about uh, a little more than a billion dollars of business aviation loans around the world for clients of the city private bank. And um, becoming a pilot, you know, here I am running an aircraft finance group at a big bank. And if you had asked me 30 years ago if I was going to be doing anything like that, I thought you would be crazy. But, but here we has, are. But it has worked in your favor, hasn't it, Ford? Because you know the language, you're, you, you know the left seat, even if you're not checked out in a big airplane like a Challenger or, or um, uh, a Falcon or, or whatever it happens to be, you, you're, still, you're still knowledgeable and can talk to these potential owners and sellers, right? Well, yeah, and I've owned seven airplanes myself. Oh, my. Tell me what you've got. I started out with a like a lot of people with a 172. Okay, and then uh, I bought after that a uh, a debonair, a beach debonair, which was really a bonanza. Right, a 33. Uh, yeah, so it was a C33A. I had serial number two, the first one sold. Holy cow! The first you know straight tail bonanza ever sold. I bought. It was a 1966 model. And it was been maintained since for many, many years by the same shop at Hanscom Field. We knew the prior owner very well and how it had been maintained. It was one of those, yeah, I'm comfortable buying an older airplane because you really know its history situations. Um, owned that for about, oh, God, six years. After that, bought an A36 in 1989, A36 Bonanza. Uh -huh. Owned that for another five years. And then after that, bought a uh, Piper uh, Malibu. Ooh. And that was... Um, a lesson uh, that I don't want to repeat because I'm convinced it's a, the cabin's fabulous. I loved the airplane because it was pressurized. You could just get in and go. It was no nice certified. Yep. But, you know, we had to put three engines in that over the years. And I only owned it for four years. Oh, my. Right. So um, I don't think that airplane really was designed to have a piston engine running it at, you know, flight level 230. It's just not enough cooling. I think that's the fundamental problem. But I loved the airplane, but it was I had so many problems with it, unfortunately, I sold it. And then um, after that, I bought a B36TC. Ooh, okay. B Bonanza was my favorite Bonanza. I loved the longer wing um, and the built-in oxygen and the turbo. It just, it was, it didn't have the complexity of the Malibu um, and really could do some things. I loved it. Um and unfortunately, just wasn't flying enough, um, and I wanted a partner. And an opportunity came up to buy the A36, the last A36 we owned with Neil Conaghy, Um, and that's the one we sold to Michael Goulian. So it was a uh, – I've had a great experience, and since then, unfortunately, um, I've had too many kidney stones, so I've I had to sort of say goodbye to my medical. Ah, um, shucks. But in the interim years, the cost of 
college education has skyrocketed so much, uh, and I was paying for three of them. It oh was my. Uh, an airplane. Probably wasn't even the cards, though. Even though I have a good <laughs> job, you know, the cost of education alone just will kill you. Indeed. Well, you said college. Let's talk about that because the word college figures in a major way into your I laughed incident. You had a family member who needed to get to college, and you offered to fly her there. Is that correct? Right. Well, I, I, I had a cousin who um, is a lot younger than I am, and she grew up in Nantucket. And Nantucket's a tough place to get to. And I learned to fly because I used to go down and see my family down there who live year-round down there. And that's why I became a pilot, essentially, was to fly back and forth to Nantucket. Because I was sitting in the right seat of a Cessna 402 on Cape Air, I'm like, oh I can do gosh. this myself. Why am I... <laughs> Why am I paying somebody and I got to drive to Hyannis to do it or Boston instead of Hanscom Field? So that's essentially why I became a pilot. But back to the story. Yeah. My my cousin was, uh, it was uh, early summer, had scheduled to attend orientation, which is held, you know, a month or two before the semester begins at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. And that's a... Normally, it's a fabulous flight. It's beautiful. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump. It's not- It's a 40, 45-minute flight up, just up over the, uh, the uh, up over New Hampshire, the White Mountains and the Green Mountains. And it's usually beautiful because you get to see Lake Champlain and the Adirondacks on the other side, and you get to see the Green Mountains. You can see up to the north of Lake Champlain into Montreal. It's just gorgeous. Oh, that's the and way to do it. Not to mention Mount Washington and all those sort oh, of beautiful views. Going up Tuckerman's Ravine and all stuff. What's a great that that'll have snow in it in the middle of August sometime. Exactly, and and oh, you boy. can go hiking in it. And, and trust me, in, in late June, early July, the snow's still there and creates. I have some done issues. it. I have done it in camp shorts. You do it in camp shorts and you get to the top and it's thirty degrees and blowing forty and you're saying, "Why did I wear shorts?" Well, that happened to me two years ago myself. <laughs> so there you go. But. It was, uh, and I can't remember why I ended up flying her, but, um, and she hadn't flown that often in small aircraft, and my aunt and uncle were, you know, s somewhat concerned, um, and I just wanted to show them, and more importantly, her, that, you know, uh, flying's fun. It's a, you know, it, and it's a real convenience, and it's a real tool. Uh, my office was at Hanscom Field at Jet Aviation for 13 oh years, and so it was great. Uh she was dropped off at the office, um, and I walked out to the airplane. Uh, it was the first thing in the morning, and I needed to be back because I had uh, to do some work. I had a few calls, and I think I even had a meeting that day, later in the day. And mm -hmm. I said, this is going to be great. I'll fly her up in the morning and drop her off at orientation, turn around and come back, and it'll be a beautiful flight, and I'll be at my office by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, that's not what happened, however. Uh, no, or it would not have been an I laughed moment. Something had to have gone wrong. So you took off and first of all, what were the conditions? You said generally it's a beautiful day and it's a great flight. Yeah, not, uh, this and I, not this day. <laughs> well, if it had been a, a, a beautiful day, I think I might have handled the situation a little differently, but it was about a 500 foot ceiling. It was, it was, it was through and through IFR. Now, this took place, what, sometime in the late 90s, so you did have GPS. But it was pretty rudimentary. It wasn't like it is today with the big moving map and, you know, you where you are all the time and can, you know, navigate on your own. Synthetic vision, yeah. Yeah, you know, very different in those days. I mean, you couldn't really see the extended center line of runway or the ILS on in a screen or anything. You really, 
relied on those vectors or the procedure that was depicted on the plate that you followed. Basically, you, you would be flying an approach by the needles then, right? Oh, completely. It was yeah. absolutely by the needles and nothing else. Okay. Then. 500 foot over, not great, but not impossible. No, and, and I'd flown a lot of ILSs down to Nantucket, where I, at the time, owned a summer home. And used to commute daily back up to Boston for a while, up to Hanscom Field, because I just walk into the office after putting, you know, the uh, getting out of the airplane at Jet Aviation. But um, it was, yeah, it was definitely different. Um, and uh, the weather was, it wasn't windy, luckily, but it definitely had that sort of feeling of a gray, overcast, not very nice day to it. I have so, experienced it up that way. I know exactly what you're saying. And it is inhospitable, but not impossible. Right. And you're, you know, so when you, you know, you get into the clouds, it's pretty dark. That's when you know it's sort of a thick layer. Yeah. And you're not going to get on top fairly quickly. So this day, um, obviously filed the IFR flight plan, uh, you know, pretty much got what I, what I filed for, Manchester Direct, essentially, um, and Hanscom 6 departure. And I thought this was going to be one of these no-brainer IFR flights because it was smooth up there. It was going to be, you know, I'd hand fly it till I got to altitude and put the autopilot on, et cetera, which I've done many times prior to that. Pretty simple. Sure. So we took off. and But, you know, it was interesting. As we were taxiing out, there was, seemed to be a lot of chatter on the ground frequency as well as when we got on the tower frequency about some aircraft that were inbound to Hanscom. And their call signs were SAM. Now, we all know what SAM means. Oh, I know exactly what that means. Special Air Missions. Sam Fox, Andrews Air Force Base, Washington, D.C. You got it. And there were two of them inbound. Two of them. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, there was no TFR, so you knew it wasn't the president or the vice president, but you knew it had to be something special. Yes. And we'll get to the specialness in a little bit. Okay. But, um, so, we t I, you know... Got, we got the clearance, taxied out, took off, took off behind two um, Challenger business jets. Um, no issues from them. They reported the bases at about 500 feet. So here we go. Take off. You know, my uh, I get my cousin explained her what's going to happen here. And, you know, we're going to be in the clouds not to worry about it. And that uh, we've got instruments and we're talking air traffic control and we'll have you in Burlington shortly. And I took off. I sucked the gear up. And I got ready to enter the clouds, enter the clouds, and I started doing my scan. And I was doing my scan all of a sudden off to the lower right, right above the throttle quadrant. There's a flashing light. And guess what? I lost my alternator. Oh, that fast. Really fast. And it turns out, and it was fine before we took off. It, you know, it was fine. And I, we checked it. It was fine. We went through the thorough checklist. I always did the thorough checklist. And... It was flashing, and it was already at 13 volts, headed south pretty quickly. And I, I sort of did the, oh my God, this is this happening to me? Can't be happening to me. This only happens to, you know, people you read about. And I learned about flying from that. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You're like, oh my God, no, not really. This can't be happening to me now. And you're like, what am I gonna do? And you just pause. And you say, and you say to yourself, that's a really stupid question. You need to get back on the ground as soon as possible. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what do I tell our traffic control? And just as I get handed over to Boston departure, I check in with Boston departure. And I think I probably made the did not make the guy's morning. A matter of fact, probably ruined it. 
when I checked in and said Boston departure, it's been it's Bonanza. I can't remember the call sign of the Bonanza. I'll just you know it's one three Delta. That's right. It's Bonanza one three Deltas out of uh, six hundred climbing two thousand declaring an emergency. Uh, state your emergency. What you've got an emergency? State your emergency. Nature your emergency. Souls on board uh, and fuel remaining, please. Um, just, you know, I, I can tell he was just, what is going on? This was unlike what other guests on this podcast have talked about, how the uh, controllers in New York for a previous guest were very, very calm. Did this guy sound rattled to you? Well, he wasn't expecting it. That's what it sounded like. He was surprised. I could easily tell he was surprised because he had a lot of supervisors at that very time looking over their shoulder because... We just mentioned the SAM aircraft. We're inbound mm -hmm. to Hanscom. So he said, uh, uh, you know, state your intentions. And he was very formal because he had lots of people looking at him. He was out of the book, controller glossary 101. Here we go. State your intentions. And I said, I need immediate vectors back to the ILS for 1-1 at Hanscom with no delay. And he said, stand by. Fly, fly your current heading, stand by, climb, maintain 2,000. And I was like, okay. He didn't say he was going to get me in right away. And I'm getting nervous. And I'm looking over my cousin. She said, uh, Ford, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, well, we have a little electrical problem. We have a battery. We should have enough juice in the battery to get us back on the ground. But we really need the battery because we can't see outside the airplane right now. And this is at a time where we didn't – where – Newer avionics, each individual unit, like a G3X or a G5 or something like that, or or or, or any of the others that are out there, um, they will have their own battery backups that'll give you 30 minutes in addition to the aircraft battery. So you've right. got you've got a little extra cushion there, but you didn't have that, did you? No, nor did I have like a little you know pop out air turbine that I could pop out and get some power out of that. A rat? You didn't have a rat. Right, Ran but I ended up putting one in afterwards, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, boy. I also didn't know how old the battery was and what kind of condition it was in. And in all honesty, I just said, I need to get on the ground. I'm not going to take, you know, play on Mr. Nice here. And I just, the controller came back on and said, we've got vectors for the ILS. Uh, we have two inbound aircraft for the ILS-11. And just at that point, he says to one of the SAM aircraft, Cancel your your approach clearance is canceled. Uh, fly runway heading, climb maintain. I can't remember the altitude. Whatever it was, something out right. of your way. Right, and there was another SAM on the frequency that he gave. Ended up giving vectors for out of my way. And what it turned out, why was the controller so? I got the sort of sense in his voice that it was not a normal situation. From his end, was because the first lady was on the ILS. Holy cow. Are you saying the, are Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton was on the ILS. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, for a controller to tell the, you know, the first lady's aircraft, you you're cancel your approach clearance, you know, go and expect holding. That came was the next frequency, you know, standby for holding instructions. And, you know, the first lady and SAM aircraft don't hold unless there's a real, you know, there's a real reason. Um, and this was a real reason but not the reason that normally they see. So um, we we got the vectors, We and, the, and I kept staring at that bloody voltage meter, I'll tell oh. you. And it was down to, you know, 13, 
you know, 13.2, 13.1. And I'm like, oh, my God, we got to get on the ground now. At this point, Ford, has the controller cleared you for the approach? Is he lining you up to intercept the localizer? I was on the downwind. They gave me the heading was two nine or zero, which clearly was the reciprocal of one one. So I knew I was on the downwind. Okay. Thing is, back in those days, you couldn't look at your iPad or your moving map and say, oh, it's a downwind because I'm a beam the airport. You have to be in total trust of the fact that they are going to they are going to vector you in a way that will put you in a position to intercept the localizer and then the glide slope. Right. And I even asked for a tight turn to the localizer because I was so concerned about the battery. Of course. Now, and, did you have time at that point to tell them that your alternator had failed? Oh, yes. So I explained okay. exactly what had gone wrong. Two souls on board. We had four and a half hours of fuel and um, et cetera, that we had a, a alternator was out and we were, voltage was dropping rapidly, is what I said to ATC. Ooh, okay. And, you know, I think that got their attention. <laughs> I'm sure um, it did. Yep. And when I said voltage dropping rapidly, you know, there were, all of a sudden I got a, I got a, I, I, that's when they, as soon as I said that, he turned me to the downwind. So I suspect that he's like, okay, this is a real deal. This isn't some shenanigans and this guy really needs help right away. Um, I don't know what his supervisor or other people in the tower, in the, in, in rather in the radar cab were telling him, but um, I didn't care because I was so focused on flying that damn airplane. Now, luckily, I did engage the autopilot so I could pull out the checklist. The checklist didn't help because it was a bloody broken alternator, it turned right. out. So it wasn't anything I could do to solve the situation. All I did was make sure I was going to do the manual gear extension the right way. And I started extending the gear even before we uh, got, you know, we were just outside the final approach fix. I started extending the gear a little earlier. And that gear is hard to extend. It's, it takes some effort. So the autopilot, without an autopilot, I don't know how you could have done it. Wow. Because it took some strength and also took, you know, you had to, more importantly, your head is looking down. And then you're looking up at the gate, looking down. And that, you know, I can't. The, and really messes up your scan. Yeah. Whatever, it, it induces that sort of uh, optical illusion or in your brain or whatever. And a potential for vertigo as well. Exactly. So I was very concerned about that, not trying to move my head rapidly, thinking back to the training that Mike Goulian's shop had given me and one of their old instructors who had done that purposely on me, I'll never forget, had put the airplane in a bizarre attitude when I had uh, the foggles on and said, where are we? What are we doing? And I'll never forget going, I don't want to be in that situation. So when I'm in a cloud, so I was very careful. I even had my cousin, I asked her to keep an eye on the attitude indicator. We had the autopilot on, but I was still worried. I wanted her to monitor it because I wasn't going to monitor it while I was putting the gear out. You were probably very, very happy that you had a vacuum. Well, pump. yes. Oh God. Yes. No question. And I'm more worried about, I was always more worried about losing the vacuum pump than the alternator. Sure. Because to me, you got a battery, what's the big deal? But what you don't know, you don't know how old the battery is. You don't know what the current draw on the battery is and what the load is. So you've got to be, you always got to be most conservative. And for me, without doing, you know, and I'm not an engineer, I can't do math in my head very easily. So I was like, I'm getting on the ground as soon as possible. And I'm taking no, you know, no delay here as soon as that. Well, let's cut to the chase. You obviously made it to the ground. What happened after that? Because you have just displaced the first lady of the United States of America and a second airplane that's probably full of media and press people. 
uh, for some appearance she was going to make near Hanscom. Exactly. So um, it's funny when I, when they turned me over the controller, he said uh, cleared the land, and he said we've scrambled the equipment or something to that effect. To which I then looked at my <laughs> uh, cousin. I said, "Don't worry. When we break out, you're going to see tons of emergency vehicles all over the place." This is what they just do, standard operating procedure. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. La-di-da-di-da. Right. So we broke out. And as the voltage dropping now to like just around 12 volts, and I'm like, uh, I could, in clear, clearly, if it had been another five minutes, it would have been a problem. And I, and I look out the window as I looked up from the voltage meter, and I realized there are tons of flashing blue lights. Blue lights? Yeah. That's not emergency ARFF stuff. It, well, there's, yeah, so Enhanscom being on Air Force bases, the AARF was back then from the U.S. Air Force. So they had tons of U.S. Air Force fire trucks out there and other equipment waiting for me. But there were five or six state police vehicles out there and a bunch of other black SUVs with flashing blue lights all hanging over the place. Ooh. I'm like, what is going on here? Now, did you know at that point that it was the first lady? No. You just knew it was a Sam airplane. At that point, frankly, you didn't know what Sam was. You didn't care. Right, exactly. Okay. I'm just get the damn thing <laughs> on the ground. So I land and I taxi, not to Jet Aviation where my office was, but office was, but to where my mechanic was, his ramp, because I needed to know what the problem was. And to see, I maybe this is something simple we can have fixed quickly and we'll get back in the air. <laughs> Whatever it is. Don't know. Maybe, you know, who knows? Well, it turns out it actually was a was a sheared shaft on the alternator. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was. A, it, we need a new alternator. It was not something that was going to happen right away, obviously. But as I got out of the airplane, I was met with state police troopers and Secret Service guys and asked us to go face down on the ground. Did they have guns drawn on you? Yeah, they had guns out. Yes, they did. Oh, my gosh. And we're like, what the hell is going on here? What is your cousin thinking about this point? Because she was told to get on the ground, too. I, I wasn't. I, I don't know. I was, <laughs> I'm just like, what the frig is going on here? And then um, after they looked in the airplane, looked at us, and we got up and we said, we're ter you know, apologize for all the inconvenience was the word they used. I'm like, what the hell? Show you know, that's more than an inconvenience. Um, but um, the first lady was in the airplane that uh, was broke off its approach. And just as that, they said that, I looked up and it was landing. And um, we're terribly sorry, but we have to take uh, security very seriously now. Um, and it was, they were very serious about it, trust me. And just as I'm talking to then the nice firefighters, or is everything okay? Is they're open the cowling to make sure everything's okay? Um, the FAA shows up. Now, in an emergency landing like that, the FAA does not send out an inspector right away. They normally don't even do anything. No, there was no there was no injury. There was no crash. It was basically just an emergency that ended in a non-event. Right. So two FAA inspectors showed up like in 10 minutes. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my God. And then they start asking all the questions. I did get a letter a few weeks later saying, you know, we've concluded our investigation. I'm like, investigation for a damn alternator? What are you... Are you you know, you handled everything correctly. There's no, there are, you know, no further action or whatever. I was like, oh my God. And literally, I had people taking pictures of the airplane, um, all these law enforcement people. We were interviewed separately. We had to take statements, the whole thing, just because it was a national security incident. Man. 
All well, for a broken alternator. So the, what did I learn from it? Well, let's find out in just a minute. We'll take a break. We'll come back and figure out what you, Ford Von Weisey, learned about flying from that. We'll be right back. Ask your flight school or FBO if their insurance covers you when you rent their plane. The answer is almost certainly no. Even if they do, you'll probably still be on the hook for a big deductible. For as low as $95 a year, an Avemco Insurance Company renter's policy will protect you with no deductible, ever. Visit avemco.com flying or call 800-338-8705 and you'll be covered the next time you fly. Now, back to ILAF. We're back with Ford Von Weisey, safe on the ground after an alternator failure in IMC after takeoff from Hanscom Field outside Boston, and because of his emergency causing the first ladies' aircraft to go around. It was a heck of a welcoming committee. Other than never arguing with men with guns, what did you learn about flying from that? Well, you know, after your blood pressure comes down and your and the adrenaline drains out of your brain, um, and I'll tell you, you, you get there, you think, I'm fine. And then after, you know, you get tired, you're like, oh, my God, what did I, you know, that was really bad. What did I learn about? You know, what did I, what what came out of that? And number one, state your, if you have an issue, tell air traffic control right away. Don't surprise them at the last minute, because what I did learn talking to some of the FAA guys is, you know, one of the reasons why they took it very seriously up front was because I immediately told them as soon as I checked in, we got a problem. And I didn't wait too long wow. to tell them the problem. They had a, went on to explain to me. How many people wait too long to tell it's a when it's until it's too late? There's a problem. So state be be forceful up front, state your problem. But the most important thing I learned is you got to have a plan, and you got to and you got to have a plan and don't hesitate and second guess yourself. Your initial instinct is get back on the ground and trust me, you get back on the ground right away. Simple as that. Don't second guess yourself and say, oh, it's going to be fine. Maybe I'll solve the problem. I really, you got to sort of suspend your get there-itis and you got to get back on the ground. And as soon as it happens, you know, everything changes and you're thankful you get on the ground. Simple as that. Ford, when you dealt with this, you had to go back and shoot an ILS at Hanscom. Those were in the days of paper approach plates. Yep. Did you have the pad open? Did you have a folder or a binder with your own airport's airport diagram and all the possible approaches at your fingertips, or did you have to dig for a pad and flip pages to get it? Well, luckily, and I'm not going to say I do that. I did this all the time uh, because I had somebody else on board. I was doing it by the book. So I had the departure airport approach plate and airport diagram already out on the yoke below, you know, ready to go if I needed it. Uh, I was by the book. I had all ready to go. Luckily, though, you know the frequencies in the back. You fly out of there enough. You know all the frequencies in your head. You know exactly all. You know all the intersections. You know the final approach fix. Uh, final approach fix. Honest. My house is right under the ILS to one one, and the house is just a little inside the final approach fix. So uh, you have a good idea of in your mind where everything is. There's an excellent picture, but it's always good to have the approach to remember your minimums, just to make sure you know to double check your that you put the frequency in correctly, all that kind of stuff. Good idea. 
that's well prepared, even when it's supposed to be a routine takeoff, you're still ready to land in case of an emergency. Well, you you know, you never think it's going to happen to you. And this is the other thing I learned about flying from that is it it can happen and it does happen to everybody. And at some point, you're going to have an issue, whether it's a full-blown emergency or something like I had. It's a different story, but everybody eventually is going to have something. If you fly long enough, you're going to be you're going to be confronted with the situation and that's why you have to stay on your game. You know, you can get so complacent so easily. And, you know, I might have been a little too complacent. Um, if, um, at the time had I not had my cousin on board, cause I was going to fly it by the book. So it's so easy to just say, everything's going to be fine. Let's go light the fires and go. Um, and you can't have that attitude, particularly when you're a weekend warrior, like we are. If you're a professional pilot and you do it day in and day out, it's pretty much becomes muscle memory. Um, and even they make mistakes. But just think of us. You have to be so much more deliberate in your thinking in an emergency, too, to make sure you're not forgetting something. You did talk about not panicking. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really good point. And I forgot to mention that earlier is the first thing and the very first thing I said to myself is don't panic when I saw it. And I forgot to mention that, but I, I got to say, don't panic, be calm. And in looking back, that probably, you got to be logical and you got to be, you think you're being too slow and being calm. You're not actually. You just be calm like it's, you're being professional. Think of yourself as a professional, you know, and come across as it's no big deal, even though it is a really big deal. Because if you get yourself too excited, you won't be able to think clearly. And that's really important. Good lessons, Ford. By any chance, did you hear anything from the First Lady afterwards? So I did, ironically, this is sort of funny. A few weeks ago, I was flying back from an Airbus conference for their clients who own Airbus corporate jets in Abu Dhabi. And I was seated right next to her in business class. And we had a long, wonderful conversation. She was delightful, by the way. No kidding. Did she remember the event? No, she didn't remember it <laughs> at all. Absolutely not. Of course not. Oh, well, that's... <laughs> nor did I expect her to. But, you know, I sort of, I mentioned it to her and she chuckled and laughed and she said, uh, well, I'm glad every your cousin, how's your cousin? What's she doing these days? <laughs> she was more interested in how my cousin, uh, how she turned out than she was about my emergency, which was really actually sort of cute. Um, and I said she's a veterinarian, is a, a co-owner of one of the, uh, the big animal hospitals in Nantucket now. It's been very successful. Well, And she was thrilled to hear that. That is so nice to hear. Well, Ford, that's awesome. I will be in touch with Michael Goulian as soon as we finish this interview and tell him that we, uh, we connected. And in the meantime, I just want to say thank you, Ford Von Weisey, for being on I Laughed. Well, and thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to what you guys have done with the magazine and the podcast and everything. Keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. A very good story from Ford Von Weisey indeed. And he brings up something that has become a recurring theme from our guests, being ready for any eventuality. Knowing the speeds, procedures, and techniques, as well as having the situational awareness to always have an out, should be in the front of our minds. Complacency is not our friend. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and share it with your friends. Listenership continues to grow, and I'm excited about that. 
We drop episodes every couple of weeks, so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. If you've got an I Laughed story, email me so we can look it over. My email is rob at flying.media, rob at flying.media. The I Laughed theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Potorf. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of I Laughed, and Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.